0: You can turn in a Bible, if you have one, to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 10 this morning. It's uh, verses 34 to 42. <coughs> Text is also there in the bulletin. It's on the next page. Um, so we're back in Matthew's Gospel. After a few weeks off, uh, various guest preachers over the last month or so, uh, in chapter 10, which we've been in and we get to the end of, end of here, uh, Matthew records uh, what is a, a commissioning sermon that Jesus gives. Uh, it's it's what he said to his disciples as he sent them out uh, to do ministry in his name, to proclaim his kingdom uh, with his own authority on his own mission—the same mission that he was sent uh, by the Father uh, to do. So, if if we were sending out a group on a short-term uh, mission trip, uh, giving something of a commissioning pep talk, uh, you know, we might have some things to say, uh, worry a little bit about uh, travel logistics and uh, expenses and things, but we'd probably just be excited about the people and the places that uh, our missionaries were going to go and see, and we'd suggest actually how much fun they're going to have uh, serving in foreign lands and in a different setting uh, serving people. Jesus is telling his disciples, uh, to expect not to have the grandest time. (laughs) He's telling him to expect hostility, to expect the same treatment that he himself has received in this world. Uh, But it's all part of the privilege of being able to identify with Jesus. It's the privilege of knowing him and participating in his life as God's son. Uh, Here at the end of his commissioning sermon, he really brings all this home in... um, Some pretty astounding ways. He says following him uh, will mean that we face opposition and enmity, uh, even from our closest family members. Following Jesus will mean that we take up a cross like he did, with all the pain and humiliation and shame that the cross brings. Jesus will fundamentally change our relationships, all our relationships. Our relationship with him will take absolute priority in such a way that it It reorders and redefines every other relationship. And this is exactly what we should want. It's good news that Jesus changes the way that we relate to everybody. Let's figure out what that means. Uh, Let's pray, then read the scripture. And before, uh, just let me mention, you see it there printed in the bulletin, Verses 35 and 36, they're this quote from, I, uh, from Micah chapter 7, which was our Old Testament reading that Kevin read. Uh, so I've formatted that, formatted that differently than you would find it in uh, the regular sort of ESV print. Uh, just don't be confused, calling your attention to the fact that it's a quote from Micah 7. All right, let's pray, and we'll read the scripture. Father, as we consider your word, be merciful to us, be gracious to us, bless us. Help us to understand what your Son is saying to us. Grant us faith. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in his name. Amen. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. is the gospel of jesus christ praise be to you O christ so it can be confusing to hear jesus say something like he says right there at the beginning uh, in verse 34 do not think i've come to bring peace to the earth i've not come to bring peace but a sword i mean isn't jesus called the prince of peace and in other places he says things like this in john's gospel peace i leave with you my peace i give to you i've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace Uh, And Paul says about him in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace in ways that, you know, truly brings unity between uh, previously warring ethnic groups. He brings peace. And Jesus explicitly, you know, in this uh, gospel later, forbids his disciples from using the sword, literally, against their enemies. So how can he, he also be saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword? Uh, We encounter things like this in the Bible fairly regularly when one part says one thing very strongly and uh, another part seemingly says the exact opposite thing very strongly. Many people who uh, would like to dismiss the Word of God will take that opportunity to say, see, the Bible contradicts itself and they'll insist that it's worthless and that they're justified in rejecting it. Uh, But in reality, The Word of God never contradicts itself, never, not once. It does not contradict itself. We might have a hard time understanding the Scriptures. We might have a hard time understanding, sort of reconciling seemingly disparate passages and statements in the Scriptures. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the Bible. Usually it means that we just don't want to understand it because it's saying something that we prefer not to hear, prefer not to accept. understanding the confusing or difficult places in scriptures, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just something that only smart people can really figure out. This is a matter of our relationship with God. When we come to accept that God is speaking to us in the scriptures, uh, when we actually want to understand what he's saying to us, when we pray to understand, when we seek to understand what he's saying to us, then it, it really does begin to make good sense. So in one sense, Jesus came to bring us peace with God and with each other in the church. In another sense, Jesus here is saying that he came to put us at odds with the rest of the world. He is restoring some relationships to peace while sundering other relationships and creating an enmity. So in one sense, Jesus came to uh, to fulfill the prophecy that says... You know, to to beat our swords into plowshares, to do away with the weapons of our violence. And in another sense, Jesus came to create a conflict, create a, a necessary conflict that previously did not exist. To introduce a necessary enmity between his people and the world. And this is good news. It's part of the first gospel promise that God made when humanity turned its back on him in our first sin. So in the garden, who is God's enemy? Who's God's first enemy? It's it's the serpent. Did God create Adam and Eve to be his enemies? No. They were created to be his friends, but they became God's enemies as they joined, as they allied themselves to his first enemy, the serpent, as they submitted to the serpent's lies about God, as they rebelled against their creator and their Lord, they made themselves God's enemies. So in our sin, that's what we do. We make ourselves God's enemies. We join the side of the serpent in his war against God. So sin really is enmity with God. And that enmity is in the wrong place. We are not meant to be God's enemies. And that is not good for us to be God's enemies. Our, our sin and our enmity with God is an undoing of everything that's good about us. And so in his mercy, God promised to restore our relationship with himself. Which means removing that enmity that's between us and him because of our sin. And putting that enmity back where it belongs, actually between us and his enemy. So that's what he says in Genesis 3. He actually makes this promise to the serpent. He's speaking to the serpent, cursing the serpent. And he says, uh, because of this sin... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Because of sin, there is no enmity between us and the serpent. God will put enmity there where it belongs, right? This is God saying he's going to win sinners back to his side in his war against the serpent. So he's restoring one relationship while sundering another, creating an enmity. As God befriends us, uh, he makes his enemies our enemies, which is absolutely how it should be. He has done this through the atoning life and death and resurrection of his Son. The Son of God added a true human nature to himself. He took our humanity in himself, in his own person, and reconciled us to God through his own relationship with the Father. In Christ, we've been redeemed for a new relationship of peace with God, which also means we find ourselves in now this new necessary conflict with God's enemy. The serpent, the devil, the liar, the accuser. And we find ourselves in conflict not only with him, but with all those who continue under his power, with those who belong to his domain of darkness, with those who maintain their enmity with God in their sin and rebellion. The world that is against Christ is also against the people of Christ. And this is a conflict that did not exist when we also were enemies of God. This is a new conflict that only exists because God has befriended us by his grace in Jesus. We have enemies now because God has befriended us, because he's restored some relationships while sundering others. And this is a conflict that exists, regrettably, even with people in our own households. That's what Jesus is saying here. This conflict exists even with people in our own houses. If our fathers and the mothers hate our friend Jesus, there's going to be conflict. If our brothers and sisters embrace their sin and they reject God and his ways, they reject the God that we worship, there's going to be conflict. If our sons and daughters resent the Lord whom we proclaim and serve, there's going to be conflict. By creating us in his image, God intended for these relationships to be characterized by love. There's not supposed to be this rift. And he renews his people to, to love in his name. He calls us to care for those who are close to us, he, to care for our family members, to sacrifice for them, even if they remain on the enemy's side in his war Against God, to, to sacrifice for them and to love them. We're called to love all our family members, but sometimes those who are closest to us will manifest their sin. They will manifest their enmity with God in ways that confuse us or frighten us or hurt us. This is a, a tragically painful reality for us that we cannot escape. It's a painful reality that is determined by their relationship with God. It's a reality we cannot change. We cannot change the hearts of other people. We can't say or do just the right thing that'll make them turn to Jesus. We can't take away their enmity with God and therefore their enmity with us. We can't. We can only remain faithful to Jesus who reconciles us to God, even though it means suffering the pain of these conflicts, the same kind of pain that he himself has suffered. He says, in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me so jesus is saying that our relationship with him must have this overriding priority above all other relationships every single one he's saying that he must reorder and redefine the way that we relate to others even to our own family members Jesus requires an absolute allegiance that means uh, we cannot remain ultimately loyal to someone else, anyone else, not even our own parents, not our own siblings, not our own children, not even our own spouses. You cannot love them more than you love Jesus. You cannot obey them when it means disobeying Jesus. You cannot find your safest refuge in your household. You cannot find your truest purpose in your family. You cannot fear them more than you fear Jesus. He won't allow it. Of course, you're to love them and serve your family members, but only because of your relationship with Jesus, because he commands your love. Jesus claims the exclusive prerogative of being the center of our lives. Who can do that? Who can say such things as this? Only God, only our creator can claim things like this. This is the significance of Jesus quoting from Micah 7. Uh, Micah says in uh, his prophecy that we cannot ultimately trust or rely upon any other sinful human being. We can't open ourselves up to them in complete trust because of the reality of this enmity, this conflict that exists even between family members. And then Micah says in chapter 7, verse 7... But as for me, I'll look to the Lord. Don't look to anybody else. Ultimately, I'll look to the Lord. God is the only dependable one who will never abandon us, never betray us, never turn upon us. The only one who's deserving of all our trust and faithfulness. And as Jesus uses Micah 7 with reference to himself, saying that we have to love him above all others. This is exactly what he's saying. He's saying he is the only dependable God who will never abandon us, never betray us never turn upon us who is deserving of all our trust and faithfulness if we live with reference to him if our relationship with him has ultimate significance for us then and only then do we live in true security even if it means others close to us become our enemies we still have true security because of our relationship with jesus even if others turn against us, even our family members. And as you know, when close family members turn against us, uh, that can mean the greatest suffering that is possible in this world. Shakes you to the foundations, strips everything away. Those who are closest to us have the greatest power to cause us the greatest pain. So when we suffer rejection from some random stranger, uh, that's one thing. But when we suffer rejection from those in our own household, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It's distressing, it's consuming, it's severely painful. Jesus likens it to the suffering of the cross. He said that's exactly what it's like. And that's exactly where we have to go if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be with him. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So the cross... I sent this out in the email newsletter this week. The cross was a hideous instrument of oppression. It's a brutal and fearful tool the Romans used uh, to dominate their enemies through violence, to intimidate people into submitting to their rule. The cross was basically a way of saying, our enemies will suffer. We will make our enemies suffer. And the suffering was not just physical pain. It was holistic, holistic pain. It was psychological and emotional and relational torture. It was a suffering that said, you are wrong. If you're hanging on the cross, you are wrong. Your way is wrong. You don't belong in this world. Your choice has led you to death. It's the suffering of public humiliation And unbearable shame. When Jesus was on the cross, he was mocked. People spat on him. People from the family of the humanity who had been created in God's image for love said and did terrible things to Jesus. They wanted to be rid of him, they wanted him to know, We want to be rid of you, and they wanted him to believe it was all his fault. This is what their sin, their enmity with God brought forth in their relationship with Jesus. And the enemies of God, even those who are members of our own families, continue to bring forth terrible things in the lives of Christ's people. That really is unbearable, like dying on a cross. We can't stand it. We weren't made for it. And because of our relationship with Jesus, this is where we find true life. Whoever finds his life, that that sort of means preserving. Whoever's looking out for himself, whoever preserves his own life, seeks it and finds it, uh, will lose it, he says. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So whoever lives for himself, whoever seeks to live through self-preservation, whoever seeks to avoid the pain that comes from association with Jesus. we'll lose himself, we'll lose the true God-given self, we'll lose eternal life with God that only comes through association with Jesus. But if your relationship with Jesus is more important to you than anything else, even if it means you lose the respect of others you love, even if it means conflict in your own household, even if it means you lose your very life, actually, then you will gain Jesus and God through him, which is true life. It's this association with Jesus That is the good news here. We'll accept enmity with the world, even enmity with our loved ones, if it means association with Jesus. Otherwise, why would we follow him at all? Why would we choose this life taking up crosses, suffering unbearable things? Only because of the privilege of association with him. This association is right at the heart of this whole passage. He says in verse 40, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. It's because of this association. Right? When you receive Jesus, you receive God the Father. Because of Jesus' association with God. And it's because of your association with Jesus that God receives you your relationship with J- with Jesus changes your relationship with God through your association with him and your relationship with Jesus changes all your other relationships with others through your association with him it's because of your association with Jesus that means when other people receive you as his representative they're actually receiving Jesus it's it's this privilege of mutual representation This is how our salvation works. Jesus represents God to you, and he represents you to God. And in a similar way, you represent Jesus to others so that they live out their relationship with Jesus through you. That's what this is about. The same thing Jesus is doing between you and God. He gives you the privilege of doing between others and himself. He is the one and only true mediator between God and people, the only one who can reconcile us to God. And yet he shares his own mission with us. He shares his own authority with his people through our spiritual association with him. So people who receive us in Jesus' name receive the same reward that we receive which is the same reward that Jesus himself has received and shared with us. This is the doctrine of vicarious imputation. This is the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus' words. When you receive Jesus as the righteous one, God receives you as righteous and you receive the reward of the righteous one. When you enter a relationship with Jesus by faith, his father becomes your father through your association with him. His friends become your friends, his family becomes your family, and his enemies become your enemies. Those who reject you, when they reject you as Christians, they're really rejecting Christ in you and through you. And those who receive you, when they receive you as Christians, they're really receiving Christ through you. God relates to us as he relates to Jesus, and the way we relate to each other is ultimately about how we relate to Jesus. And the way we relate to Jesus is ultimately about how we relate to God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the center of it all. That's what he says about our relationships. So John says, this is uh, printed down below the sermon passage in 2 John. Says that if someone comes to you with a false teaching about Jesus, they're mi- misrepresenting Jesus. Don't receive him. Or else you'll participate in his wicked works. Something about his life you join. That false teacher has rejected the true Jesus, and if you accept the false teacher, then you participate in his reje- rejection of Jesus. And then in 3rd John, I mean you never hear 2nd John and 3rd John quoted. 3rd <laughs> John, he also says. If brothers come to you truly in the name of Jesus, you should receive and support them. Because then you will be fellow workers for the truth. Those brothers were sent by God. And if you show them hospitality, and if you serve them and support them, then you participate in the life of Christ through them. For Jesus, it's a promise. You relate to each other as you relate to him. And as you represent him, others relate to you as they relate to him. They relate to him through their relationship with you. Only God could claim such a central and all-pervasive relationship with us as this. Only God could change all our relationships like this. And it's only by the grace of God that we're given such a privilege. Believe it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these words spoken by your Son are hard for us. We pray that you'd help us to hear them as good, as the words of eternal life. Let faith come alive in us and manifest in changed lives, free of fear, free to follow Jesus, free to love through the Spirit, even if it means the cross for us. Lord Jesus, we love you, even though it means our suffering with you. We love you because... You've made us your friends because you've made your Father our Father, because you've made your Spirit our Spirit, your family our family, and even your enemies our enemies. It is a privilege that it's difficult to be thankful for. We pray for your Spirit's help with that. Help us to find you in the taking up of our crosses. We pray in your name. Amen.